What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. I, I think we have a crisis of compassion. Um, I think that's the one thing that, that we are missing. I, I don't think we're missing empathy. Uh, I think it is the compassion. It's it's that that motivating factor that's going to get us to do more. Um, you know, there are um, many studies that that are out there that that talk about the benefits of actual compassion, not just you know for you, but listening to people and caring about them makes everyone better. Um, I I wish people really would would delve into that science as well. It's like you know, yes, we can talk about Darwin all day long. You want to talk about cosmology? Oh, I'm up for it. But can we talk about the sciences that have impact immediately um, on day to day life? And and we're, we're just we're not having those conversations. An ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become? atheist after being a pastor. What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that's that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond, with your host, Ryan Bell. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Life After God podcast. My name is Ryan Bell, and I'm your host. This is episode 66, and I'm super excited to share with you a conversation that I had a few days ago with good friend Alex Jules. I'll tell you a little bit more about Alex in a moment and then share that conversation with you. But before I do that, let me just let you in on a little personal victory. My girlfriend, Brooke, who some of you have heard me talk about in the past, is a radio producer and a podcaster herself, and also the producer of a brand new podcast from iHeartMedia called Mating Matters with Dr. Wendy Walsh. It's currently two episodes and counting. The third one is coming out this Wednesday. And I'm just really excited to share it with you. It's so beautifully produced and um, funny in places. This podcast takes a look at sex, relationships, dating, and contemporary culture through the lens of science. Dr. Walsh is a psychologist and a public intellectual, radio host, and now podcaster. And I think you're going to love it. So go to iTunes, search for Mating Matters, It'll pop right up. It's uh, got a purple logo that you can't miss. Subscribe, listen. They're short, 20-something minute episodes. And if you like what you hear, rate it for them. Give it, give them five stars and a nice uh, review and help others find this podcast as well. Share it with your friends. I know Brooke and Wendy would be incredibly grateful. If you listened to the last episode, you heard me describe the new Facebook group, which now has over 35 members in it and growing. And we're having some amazing conversations there about episodes of the podcast, about what we want to see out of a community like this. 
and I've got some really fun uh, new announcements to make in the next few weeks. So uh, I hope you'll you'll join us there in the members group on Facebook, and I'll uh, tell you a little bit more about how to do that as soon as I thank those of you that became members this week. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by the members, by the patrons, and especially I want to thank those of you that joined since the last episode. 21 people have become patrons since the last episode, including Adri, Christine, Deloise, Linda, Katie, Ron, Josh, Mary, John, David, Gretchen, Jules, Jacob, Jeremy, Joyce, Benjamin, another John, Dana, Glenn, Jared, and Ron. Thank you all so much for uh, stepping up and joining the podcast, becoming members of the Facebook group, and participating in the ongoing conversation that happens between episodes in that forum. Before the next episode, we'll have a new feature to add for members that I think you're going to love. Uh, I'll be announcing that on the Patreon page as soon as I know the details. You're not going to want to miss that. Thank you so much to each and every one of you. And of course, to Jeff Straka, who I've come to refer to as my executive producer, faithful supporter of the podcast. If this podcast adds value to your life and you'd like to help me reach more people, I want to invite you to become a member. All you have to do is go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash lifeaftergod. You can contribute any amount you like as a recurring monthly donation from as little as $1 up to as much as this podcast is worth to you. The membership level starts at $5 a month, and at that level you'll be able to join the Facebook group where we discuss podcast episodes, share ideas with one another, support one another, and give each other feedback. You can also share feedback about the podcast, suggest ideas for upcoming episodes, and interact with me on a one-to-one basis. As I said, my guest today is Alex Jules. Um, Alex has been a friend on Facebook since I started my journey. We were both writers on the Patreon website, on the Atheist channel, um, when I started my Year Without God blog, and Alex was writing a blog there as well at that time. We've corresponded on Facebook and on Twitter, as we do in this modern age. I had a chance to meet him once in Dallas at a conference that we both spoke at and was really honored to catch up with him um, this past week to record this conversation. Alex is a writer, activist, and social commentator who typically discusses race, religion, and politics in culture. He's been featured in Ebony Magazine, Time Magazine Online, and is a contributor to various books and articles on science, tech, and the impact of religion in the African-American community. His activism includes building bridges for humans through discourse and finding literal safe spaces for non-believers, LGBT youth, and recovery programs for survivors of abuse. He is an academic nomad whose graduate studies range from computing and data interpretation from Columbia University and Northwestern to challenging the ideas of the mind with studies in psychology at Harvard. His activism involves him with many different nonprofit organizations, including Black Nonbelievers, the Center for Inquiries African Americans for Humanism Project, and the American Humanist Association's Black Humanist Alliance. You can find Alex online on Twitter at Alex331, that's A L I X 331, on Facebook at Alex Jules, and I'll include links to his contact information in the show notes on the Life After God website. 
I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Here's Alex Jules. Alex Jules, welcome to the Life After God podcast. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Man, it's so good to have you. I, you know, we've been chatting online for years, and I, I think I met you in Dallas once at a conference, but we have not had nearly enough time to hang out in, in ter- as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so this is great. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's been, um, it's, in, it, it's funny because I think I was, the first time I heard about your story, um, I was writing, I was blogging for Pathios at the time. And I just kept thinking to myself, oh boy, he's, he's really doing this. He's really <laughs> stepping o- away from this. And, um, I kept thinking to myself, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm reading some of what you're writing. And, uh, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, boy, is he in for kind of an interesting set of awakening over the next few years? I think oh I've gone, gone through. Well, I mean, my, my bad. I, you came from where I was going. Um, you know, for, for me, I, I grew up in the church. Um, I grew up in the Catholic church specifically, actually. Oh, wow. And, and I, I, I had this, what I thought was a calling. Um, and I was, I think my, I can't remember how old I was when, uh, when I first told my, mother that I was going to be a priest, I think was either five or six. And up until uh, I puberty, 12, 13, 14, if you ask anybody, it's like, well, what is Alex going, going to do? And, well, he wants to be a priest. And we're sure that that's what, what he's going to, go, uh, going to go do. Now, I came from an African um, Caribbean background, Haiti. I dealt with a lot of refugees in Brooklyn. I grew up in New York City, Brooklyn specifically. And I, I always... You know, my grandmother was always taking me to church. I, I would joke around with people, tell them, hey, I, I was in church more than Muslims at, at, at some point. I was mm. praying more than my Muslim friend. Uh, and it took a few years of, you know, asking really hard questions before I, I really got to the point, really into my teen years, where I, it, it just wasn't good enough. I actually left the Catholic faith, delved into Islam because, oh, wow. why not? Oh yeah, oh yeah. That, Are you that, still in Haiti at this point? No, I was here in the U.S. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, this is all. It was all in the U.S. My mom left when I was really young. Uh, decided that she was going to come over here and uh, have a whole new life for us. And mm-hmm. it was myself, my sister, my grandmother, my aunts, um, my my cousins. Everyone else was born here. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, it was just. Uh, but I came from a very political family. And even now, when I take a look at what's going on in Haiti, I mean, they're, the, the country's on fire again. They're demanding the president um, step down. And so my, my family being very, very political um, over the last hundred years or so in the, in the uh, country's history, m- my mother wanted to just leave and just walk away from all of that. And so she did. And so she came here. But, um, you know, she really wanted to make sure that I had a better upbringing than what the public schools gave us. And of course, growing up in Brooklyn, seeing the main streets of Brooklyn, the mm-hmm. main streets of the ghetto, yeah. she wanted to make sure that I was taken care of and I was going, going to be you know, a righteous person, a righteous man, a compassionate person, a compassionate individual that, that cared. And so 
Um, you know, many of my afternoons growing up, I was in the church and I was out there feeding refugees, dealing with immigration issues with my mom. My mom I, I think I was six or seven years old when I had my my first picket sign, not knowing what I was doing. My, my mom wow. was either take, taking me, me down to the United Nations or an embassy somewhere to talk about, um, you know, how, how we can actually help uh, Haitian migrants, Haitian immigrants, and then it became African immigrants, etc. Anyone who was actually in need, how do we address um, what we now call immigration reform and, and, and policy? So um, I was all, I was always all about that. Um, I was, I also wanted to, you know, wear the collar, be Superman, you know, on, on during one part of the season, you're dealing with, uh, with births and christenings, and you get to experience that joy. Mm. But the very real, the, the very realities of Brooklyn and New York in the 80s and 90s was we were dealing with the crack epidemic. We were dealing with uh, a very different um, different street mentality. It was much more violent. So I was also seeing death and poverty, et cetera. And, and I, I wanted to be there to be, you know, because I lost friends and I wanted to be one of the people that consoled the mothers that were grieving, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for me, it was really a, um, it, it was an internal struggle walking away from that and, and, you know, being in New York, I had opportunities to walk into the synagogues and have conversations with rabbis. I I would talk to, you know, priests, archbishops, etc. I just had that uh, that ability. I mean, it's all right walk, there. It's, it's all right there. And I got to the point where I was like, okay, nobody's got the answers. And some of the hard questions I, that I was asking, just beyond the basic. Uh, basic doctrines like okay well if there really is god here why why am i dealing why am i seeing so much suffering today still this can't be right this can't be fair this is not just um and then uh, finding you know i just like judaism isn't it christianity isn't it for me um i threw myself in islam just why not? You know, wow. there, there yeah. had to be an answer there. And for, you know, the last few years of my teendom, um, I, I was there and I, no, this, this, this is also wrong. Uh, I was kind of semi tormented with religion and trying mm. to get the answers. And of course I, I had this wonderful science background and reason and rationality was burgeoning. And, and I, I went to, you know, math and science schools um, when I got older, and so I'm like, what do I do? How do I, how do I reconcile what I know versus what I feel? Um, and that was really hard. Uh, and then I actually, right before I, I decided that I was going to really walk away, I spent one whole year um, at uh, <laughs> in seminary. <laughs> oh, Wait, wow. why, why not? Why not? Just give it one more chance, one more shot. Because your grandmother, this is this is this is part of who you are. This is part of your culture. This is um, I had to be part of the human service industry. Uh, that it, I, it was just really very compelling for me. 
And when we really got into it, you know, um, good counsels and, and how the Bible came to be, etc., I, that's when my crisis of faith really hit me. And I walked away from religion. I, I, I call myself agnostic mm-hmm. at that, at that point. Yeah. Um, I, I, the, the word atheist just, that was not even anywhere near my vocabulary. Uh, it wasn't until many, many, many years later, uh, still after being exposed to reason, rationality, more books and more reading. Uh, and then nine 11 happened and I being from New York, I happened to be in Texas at the time. Uh, I, uh, you know, there, there were you know, several losses that, that I personally experienced. I'm like, okay, I'm going to get up. And I actually flew to New York. I think I was on one of the first flights that uh, was clear to land in LaGuardia afterwards. And I was there walking the streets, looking with people, consoling people. And one thing I realized is, one, I, I, I don't have to justify this a god that that that's there that wasn't right you know what i'm saying you know i i don't have to do that so that burden was gone i don't have to answer that question and so people in the streets you know crying or praying and and there's like you know i i, I won't pray with you but i will sit there and or stand there and hold your hand and and i'll walk the streets as as long as you want and i'll comfort you i'll cry with you because we got people that we haven't been able to locate yet either and mm, so we're still mm-hmm. all in the same boat but um you know there, there's this one one line that i wouldn't cross and that was you know i'm not gonna pray with you i'm gonna be with you i will hold you but um but and i think it was in that moment that it was it was really that day that i i, I actually used the word atheist the first time wow. because you know one understanding that no god that i could love and be you know have a relationship with or understand in any any uh fashion would allow any of this and we couldn't use and justify his or its being um to do this right and having studied islam I was like i understand where they were coming from i don't get to where they they were but right. i i understand where where they were coming from and then on the other side again, there's no way to justify this. And so that's where all religion and I just, you know, I, I broke away completely. Um, yeah. You know, nine eleven is, was a major breaking point for me as well. And I don't know if you've uh, probably listeners to this podcast have heard me tell this repeatedly, so I won't bore people with it too much, but uh, I was tracking about 12 years behind you. So whereas nine eleven was the end of the end for you, it was sort of the beginning of the end for me. Um, I was still in an evangelical church as a pastor, and uh, it was seeing the signage around town, anybody that had a movable lettering sign from the Kiwanis Club to churches to bars (laughs) and restaurants, it changed to God Bless America, and it just seemed like competitive sports, you know, that our God is versus your God, and God bless us, but God damn them, and and um, and I realized, knowing as a little bit about world religions at that time, you know, here I was a pastor knowing almost nothing about world religions, um, that that the people who committed those atrocities, among other beliefs that they also held, believed that God was on their side. And, and then we were calling on God to be on our side. And I was like, this can't both be true. 
Um, So that was sort of the opening for me to become more involved in interfaith, which eventually led me to where I am today, you know, cutting a very long story short. But that was really a crucial moment. I was in Philadelphia at the time, and I was... um, with my my then wife and our uh, 11-month-old baby, we were on the New Jersey Turnpike headed to see my friend in Manhattan uh, as the planes hit the buildings and it was so it was so visceral for us and and uh yeah, it was it was it was a powerful moment and I totally relate to what you're saying. And so at that point when you let go of of all religion like you're not holding out hope, you're not an agnostic anymore, you actually think okay, I'm an atheist. Um, what happened then? I mean, how did you find your, you, your, are you, do you have a family at this point? Are you raising children yet? Yeah. So at the time, um, I, I was living in Texas. I was married. Um, I had two children, um, you know, li- little ones. I think, uh, my son was, was maybe about three or four years old. My, my daughter was, you know, re- really just a baby. And, my wife at the time wound up um, getting a divorce later and religion played a part of it because she, she was very Christian and did not see, see what I saw. Um, But with my mom back home and and that was my lifeline. I mean, it was my mom, it was my grandma. Um, When I used that term, when I used the word, um, it was, um, it caused a major riff in my family. In fact, my mom and I went, almost 10 years without talking because wow. of it. Wow, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, th- so, there was, so there was some cost. And, you know, it, it, she would play these wonderful little games, you know, the whole, you know, I'm praying for you, et cetera. She would occasionally call me when she knew that there's no way at 2 o'clock in the morning I'm picking up because I'm asleep. And she's <laughs> like, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about you. Just wanted to let you know that we're praying about you. I would occasionally head out to New York, and I would hear from my cousins that um, they led a prayer service for me, trying to get me back, you know, to, to come back to the Lord. All kinds of, of things like that were going on. And um, that, that, that was hard to hear. Uh, I wound up... Um, I, I wound up remarrying to a wonderful woman uh, many years later, and uh, she happens to be a, an atheist as well. When, when we got together, she was an agnostic, and I was I was a hard a atheist at the point. Um, <laughs> a bright was, red capital A atheist. Oh, big big Dawkins scale. You know, it's like what you know. Is, if there's a nine, where's the ten? I want the ten. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, I I had this you know, massive level of certainty that came with, with what I was believing. Cause I was right. I knew I was right. Mm-hmm. And she was at the point where she was, she was like, well, how do you know? I was like, yeah, okay. We could play that game for a little bit. Cause I know where you are. <laughs> Cause I've been there. Um, <laughs> just give it time. Right. <laughs> it was, it was great. We had, we had a, we had you know, wonderful conversations and uh, she would occasionally be really upset with me for taking such a hard stance or hard line with uh, with some of my agnostic or Christian friends on religion because it was, hey, you just don't know this. You need to understand this, and and there's all this knowledge that's that's behind my reasoning, and I completely d- dismiss the idea that number one, I, I used to be there. I used to be the kid in high school with two Bibles in a science high school, two Bibles ready to debate everyone. Right. Yeah. Right. Cause, cause I was right then too. 
I was 100% right then. And I was just as sure that I was right uh, when I was having those debates. So, you know, um, it actually cost me. uh, So when I decided that I was going to, you know, become more involved secularly was uh, we're we're trying to bring Camp Quest Texas or Camp Quest to Texas uh, because I wanted my kids to, you know, have – the camp experience without having the religious experience. And in Texas, they were basically one in the same at, at the point. And so we, I wanted a secular alternative. So just real quick for listeners, to, I just want to make sure people are aware Camp Quest is this amazing uh, network of camps around the country that are based on science and reason, and, and they're not religious camps. So many camps, right, that are available for children ones that I went to and perhaps you went to as a kid are all based around religion. Even Boy Scouts is very heavily, heavily religious. And so Camp Quest fills this really important, important gap in that. So just want to let people know about yes. that. But anyway, carry on. Sorry. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I, I really wanted to, you know, to help bring that here because, you know, two of my kids were interested in, in doing the camp thing. And my son was 13, 13, 14 at the time. And, uh, uh, of course, this, we're having this camp, really big thing uh, in Texas, because of why wouldn't it be? We're very biblically focused. I mean, it's it, we're still arguing about whether the Ten Commandments should or shouldn't be at the state capitol at, at this point. And um, my, the news gets a whiff of this, and they come down, and they want to do a report, and they want to talk to one of the kids, and one of them happens. To, my, my son volunteered, and uh, you know he talks about why he thinks this is important. And I, I warn him up front: it's like you're in Texas, you're in a public school. <laughs> and come around November, December, uh, he's in school, and a couple of kids wind up uh, catching him in the hall and roughing him up a little bit. Oh man! Right, because they saw his interview, and so the question then becomes. It's it's been months. I mean, why are you just now seeing his interview? And it turns out some of the local churches or one of the local churches was using that interview as a way to warn their congregants that the atheists are coming for your kids now oh, too. Wow. Yeah. Ugh. Um and I wanted to be mad. In fact I, I mean I was. I mean I, I was really angry and then I stopped and I thought about it and I said, I really wanted to be angry, but, and, and, and one of the things that the kid said was, but your child, it, but you're black. How can you not believe in Jesus? And, uh, and this was you know, another black kid. And I'm like, I want to be mad at you so badly, but I can't because I know you don't know better at this point. You just don't. And then my question came out to myself was, what am I going to do about it? All I had to do was change his mind. And how do I change his mind? Well, I have to change his parents' mind and his parents' perception. And so that means I have to change the church's perceptions and an entire African-American community's perception of what it means to be black. And so I have to redefine that. And I said, sure, no problem. I'll, I'll get right to it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Uh. Uh, but I realized how complicit I was somewhat in mm. this because I wasn't out and I wasn't advocating for secularism. I wasn't educating other people properly 
Um, I was part of the African-American for Humanism campaign that was put out by the Center for Inquiry um, that went national. And we had tons of positive feedback from the African-American community. Uh, it helped spawn several groups, of course, Mandisa Thomas uh, from Black Nonbelievers, yeah. President of Black Nonbelievers, of course, being uh, being the face of Atlanta as the face of, of Dallas. And, and it started the discussion. It started uh, a, a very good conversation on what it means to be Black and is there room to be something more than that. And unfortunately, one of the, uh, one of the tactics that I took early on in my activism was really very confrontational to the black church here locally. I mean, I was going, you know, TD Jakes was, uh, my billboard went up not very far from TD Jakes, you know, Southern Baptist, uh, the, uh, Southern location here in Dallas. And Mm. that just caused a massive uproar. Not a whole (laughs) lot of people were happy about that. Yeah. (laughs) And, And, and I was just being very, very confrontational. And I asked myself the question again of what am I trying to do? And I think it came back to how I'm coded, how I am written, what is in my DNA. And it is, I'm trying to change people, people's lives. I'm trying to persuade. But being an atheist wasn't the single most important thing in my life. Hmm. Um, it, was, it was still the five- and six-year-old boy that was passing out sandwiches in a basement of a dark church to people that couldn't eat. Hmm. Uh, it was standing behind a soup kitchen table and serving to people that hadn't eaten in sometimes days, etc. And so is that more important than what I was doing? And so how was I going to build a bridge to extend what I could do, the resources that I would be able to bring to bear to those communities uh, whether it was, you know, through Atheist Nexus for helping the homeless or other secular organizations and potentially do more interfaith uh, work where we're doing exactly that, because that was what well, that's what meant meant more to me than, hey, I'm an atheist. Yeah, I'm an atheist, too. But that's not my sole defining identity. Right. Yeah, totally relate to that. Right. Um, and so for me, it was, how do I redefine who I am? Uh, I think it was in 2011 or so, Ebony Magazine uh, happened to do an article on me. It, it, was, uh, it, was, it was the first time it had been discussed really uh, very heavily in the African-American community. Wow, the, the, cool. title, the, the, the title was, I Am the Big A. And um, it, it, it was the first time that atheism had been discussed in that magazine ever. And the first time black atheists had been, uh, <laughs> had been featured in a publication of over a million. And wow. that, I mean, I, I got so much, I got so much hate mail. It was ridiculous. But what I also got was this, this outpouring of other black atheists who, you know, again, were trying to find, define what their identities were. And one of the questions that I remember a woman asked me, she's like, um, you know, so now are, do you consider yourself a black atheist or an atheist who happens to be black? Um, and, and, and that, 
that stuck with me for, 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 for many, many years. And I was like, well, call myself an atheist, but that's not the only part of who I am. I am a black man in America. That's not the only thing that I am. Um, but I'm also a humanist. And I think uh, over the years, the H has gone from a very silent H mm. to a very love, to, to a very prominent H. And, and the A um, is, is still there. It's still very, very prominent, but not as prominent as being a humanist is because I think for me personally that um, I've, I've come to the point where uh, I've got a good relationship with compassion again. Um, so let me just ask you, cause I, I feel that same, that, that same connection to what you're saying that I uh, went from and, and, you know, our timelines are, are different and our personal experiences are, are quite different. Um, but I also have that same sense that I went from being an atheist. Like you said, it's still very true about me, but it doesn't tell you very much about me. And so I switched in my thinking as well. And, you know, if anybody asks me, I'm happy to tell them I'm an atheist, but I primarily identify as a humanist. So I wanted to ask you, what does humanism mean to you? How would you like, what's the elevator pitch? Or when you, you know, when we were Christians, we could give our testimony in a quick second. And what is the gospel story? You know, like, what's the humanist story? Um, the quick elevator pitch for me, it, it, I, I don't think it's, it's something that, that's really very sellable. I, I believe that being a humanist means caring for each other, um, and, and, and caring for each other. It really is, mm. is it. I mean, you, you strip everything else away. It's, it's caring for each other. And I, I know that there was a great definition of secular humanism that incorporates naturalism and I was like, oh, that all that's wonderful. And you have all these wonderful conditions that are there too. But if I really am looking at someone who is on the ground and homeless and or poor, and I'm kneeling with them, the first thing that I'm asking them is, how are you? Trying to remove the disdain, the judgment, and the the labels that we tend to put on people. I mean, when we deal with the poor, it is we either pity them or we go straight to judgment. So I re, I try and remove that, hmm. and I have a conversation with them, and never does does religion come to mind. It just it's it's not there. Mm -hmm. And so being a secular humanist, yes, that's wonderful. But caring for the human condition is the first thing. And you relate to uh, and, that person as a human, you know, you, you, as a human. you see Simply them in their, in their humanity. Yeah. 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 Um, and it has to be more than empathy, right? Because em saying that you empathize with someone is great. It's wonderful. It's one of the things that I think many of us should be able to do a better job of. And, but empathy is, I can feel you. I, I can I can try and relate to you, but the compassion is okay. But what am I going to do about this? What is what? How how do I use this big motivating emotion that has so many benefits, not just to them but to me as well? I mean, we know through science that just with higher activation of compassion, what happens to us is wonderful, right? I mean. Um, the levels of you know the feel good serotonin we what we feel when we are compassionate uh it's been correlated to longer life correlating to being better being 
being well, right? Mm, and that's mm. something that, that we also don't talk heavily about. We talk about a lot of the sciences in many of our secular communities, but, you know, there are some social sciences and even some natural, uh, natural sciences or hard sciences, positive psychology, you know, the science of well-being, a lot of that. And it's not the woo stuff either. It's not when I'm talking about chakras right. and crystals, et cetera. Yeah. I'm talking about what happens on a physiological level level, what we can actually see um, through neuroscience and neural imaging, we can see that. So yes, there's the feel-good portion of being compassionate, but being able to use compassion to help change the world is really important. Change the world for the better, right? Um, when we talk about things like racism, for instance, right? Racism is, is one of those things where it's really complex because it's not this straightforward, hey, if I educate you, you're going to be less racist. And if I tell you to love more and remove hate, you're going to be less. It's not just that because mm. there's this 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 thing of of self-interest that you have to bypass. And it's really hard to get sneak by the amygdala uh, because of all the social programming that we tend to see, it's just there. It's part of the baggage of being in the society that 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 we're in. It's just you're fed it. Um, but being able to get beyond that um, and getting someone to you know, one deal with the empathy and then also um, activate their compassion so that maybe it's not just about them. It becomes about you. Compassion may be one of the only triggers that actually works. So, you know, one of the things that you and I have chatted about before is the sense in which, and, and I want to, I think this will loop back to what you're saying about compassion. I hope it does, and, and I, I expect it will, that, that when people leave um, a religious tradition, let's say, whether it's Christianity or Islam or Judaism, the, the religions of the book, the you know, they, there is, with those religions, a sense of absolute truth. Whether we ever can get our hands around that absolute truth or not, whether we ever can apprehend it completely uh, is one thing. It's, but, but there's a sense that out there somewhere, there is an absolute truth. And there's a confidence in that. Even if I never completely understand it, there's this sense that, well, somebody understands it. And somebody knows what's going on. Somebody's in charge. Um, when you sort of, at least for me, when I stepped out of religion, one of the biggest shocks, I think, to my system, and people explained it to me, but it wasn't until I experienced it for myself that I realized what a big deal it is to suddenly wake up in a world in which no one's in charge, that we are really our, we're here alone, like alone with each other, but we're not, there's no superintendent, there's no parent that's going to uh, make sure we're tucked in at night or make sure that we get food or um, have a shelter over our heads. You know, we're really it for each other. Um, and so we turn, like, I think we turn to like, okay, what's solid? Like, what can I hold on to that's for real? Um, because all this stuff I've been told apparently isn't real. So I'm super skeptical that there's really anything out there that's real. And then we realize, ah, science, this is amazing. Like there's, there's actually data and proof that, you know, things exist and we can understand how they work and we can go back in time and actually 
predict where we came from and how long it took and all the different stages along the way that evolution had in today's Darwin Day that we're recording this, actually. So, you know, Darwin comes along and says, look, we weren't created 6,000 years ago. It was millions of years of slow adaptation that led to the place where we are today. And I guess the question that I want to ask you and that I'm constantly sort of wrestling with is, what is the proper... And of course, I want you to have the answer to this. What is the proper way in which to hold science in our in our minds in terms of uh, what it does for us? And and the, what's behind that question for me is my sense that we, as former Christians, we we so desperately want to hold on tightly to something true that we almost put science in a place where God used to be, or we expect it to answer all the questions that we have, and. And it's it's like you said about racism. It's not quite that neat and tidy. There's a lot. There's still human beings that are doing science, and so it's not this uh, view from nowhere. This kind of um, objective standpoint that we can have to project uh, or to understand the truth about everything. At least that's my sort of frustration with sort of the celebration of science in the secular community. As wonderful as it is, and as much as I've enjoyed. Um, sort of delving in in ways that I never was allowed to as a young person, uh, all the riches of science. Um, I'm still left with questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I I would say hold, hold, keep holding on to it, but understand that it will always be an incomplete book, and that curiosity that drove you there should continue to feed you. Um, in fact. When we start, I mean, because this is, I, I think what I felt when I ran to science, reason, and rationality was, okay, I've got it, and this is all. This is everything that I've got. This is everything that I need. And I I realized later, it's like, but there's all this other stuff, right? Being right about one question isn't being right about everything, Right. So, uh, and and even when I'm running to when I when I run to science for for certain answers, it's like it hasn't even begun to address some of the questions that I still have out there. Right. You know. Um, so um, just understand that if you're holding, you can only hold on to it with one hand because you're still looking and feeling around as a person trying to cohere what it is uh, that is your reality, who who you are. I don't think we, we really ever stop doing that. And I think it's one of the same freedom that I felt. Uh, it was also a scary bit of freedom. It's like, okay, there's no one's, there's no one driving. We're all in this together, but no one's driving. It's like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> and then it was, it was like, oh, oh, wait, 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 wait. But that means that I'm accountable for me and he's accountable for them. And and if they did something really bad um, they may and got away with it, they may never see any justice. And you've got to be able to accept that. Like, those are really tough, um, tough elements to just like, OK, I, I accept that. And we were talking about compassion the other day online. And, and you made this comment about the irrationality of compassion um, and because I, I love this picture of this world that you're painting, you know, this this idea that we humanism means we care for each other, uh, in part because no one else is going to do it for us, right? And and so we see someone that's hurting, our humanity connects with their humanity, we look at them in, in the eyes, and we 
we have this connection. This person's a human just like me, and I want to do everything I can to make their life as enjoyable and, and as pleasant as mine is, or maybe even more enjoyable. But not everyone has that, right? Like, not everyone feels that. Sometimes people are like, well, I got mine, and so too bad for you. And if you just tried a little harder, uh, maybe you'd get get what you need, or maybe you're just lazy, or or this, this kind of... Um, non-compassionate response. I mean, that's out there too, right? And people with rational minds come to those conclusions as well. And so it's is it's not inevitable that people will be these compassionate humanists. Yeah, absolutely. When I came into the secular world or my secular rebirth, <laughs> that'll piss off. <laughs> your, um, <laughs> your, your second born-again experience? Born again. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, there's this big, massive atheist community out there. And it's like, it's huge. And it really is huge. And then I said, okay, but but how many of them are humanist? And I was like, oh, wait, that's a very different number. <laughs> that's a very different number. Right. And the correlation um, isn't really predictable. No, of course not. No, ab- absolutely. Because they're still human, right? And right, yeah. so, so to, to say that atheism is magic is a fallacy, just like to say Christianity is going to inoculate you to anything. Atheism doesn't necessarily inoc- inoculate you from being, you know, anti-feminism or just mm. being a, a really bad person. None of that. It, there's, there's no real corollary there. I don't think that, again, atheism doesn't make that any better for you but you just realize that we're all subcultures within a much larger system. Right. So, you know, you mentioned a second ago this sort of distinction between atheism and humanism, that not all atheists are humanists. Certainly not all humanists necessarily are, are atheists. Some are agnostics. Some might be Jewish. Um, some are even Christians that have a very sort of uh, creative uh, understanding of Christianity, I suppose. Um, or, or they just have a very uh, humanistic outlook on the world, even though they're not uh, like naturalists. You know, they're not secular, mm-hmm. secular humanists in that technical sense. Um, we we're facing right now what I would almost call like an anti-humanist movement within uh, some sectors of the online atheist world. Uh, you know, and again, I'm probably parsing that down so small that. Some people listening to this might not even know what I'm talking about, but there there are um, in the wake of it seems to me in the wake of Donald Trump's election an emergence of um, conversation that could that is sort of anti-social justice, as you said, anti-feminist, anti-anti-racism. Um, even you know black intellectuals who are saying that anti-racism is like a religion. Um, I'm thinking of McWhorter. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, people that are really um, making this claim that that social justice is a religion and those that adhere to it um, have purity codes like religions do and that kind of thing. How do you as a as an atheist who's also a humanist, who's also a social justice a- activist, uh, how do you relate to to this sort of wave of of um, of uh, sort of anti-social justice rhetoric that we're hearing? Well, um, I, I've got I've got two answers to that one. The first one is when I peek over at 
at some what's going on in some of you know my friends' Christian circles, it's the same thing. So that makes me feel a little bit better. I mean, mm, really, mm-hmm. there's you know that that makes me feel better. It's like, oh wow, we we don't have the uh, we don't have a monopoly on 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 bad ideas. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, uh, in fact, I just I just I literally just finished prepping a friend um, for for a discussion on social justice, and it's like, hey, what else should I be reading? And he happens to be white, and he's going to be de- debating another white evangelical on on you know social justice and biblical justice. You know, are they the same? And and my argument for him is like, well, if you take a look at depending on which doctrine, um, you. Know, of social justice has to be part of biblical justice and and is isn't you know wouldn't Jesus be the biggest social justice warrior there is that's um, my sense and, of it yeah right i mean right he, he should be but yet the evangelicals are so many evangelicals are pro build the wall and uh, very selfish right, right. they're anti selflessness um and, and so there there's that but i would also argue that um, some of what we see isn't just uh, anti-social justice, but it's anti—it's tied to anti-intellectualism, and and it's this faux intellectualism because there is scholarship associated with social justice. There is history. There is context that we often ignore in these conversations, right? Um, and I'm not just talking about in sociological circles Mm -hmm. i'm talking about economic circles as well we're just not having that conversation and so there's this this very ugly caricature of what social justice is and i'll I'll sit there and i'll talk to someone that says oh you know the the pc police have have gone gone you know off the rails again and and so sjw's this is like so let's talk about martin luther king for a minute and 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 some of his thoughts and ideas, et cetera. What, what do you have in What issues do you have with MLK? And there's, well, I don't have any issues with MLK. And we'll start talking. It's like, but wouldn't you. <laughs> that you know of. Wouldn't, right, that you know. It's like, but wouldn't you agree that in his time, this same conversation was happening? And this is one of the things that, that, um, that is very upsetting for for you know people that study history when you see many of the same cycles repeating themselves you know people say black lives matter and we we don't have the black lives matter conversation anymore because something else has completely dominated oh. the national uh, national discourse since 2016 mm. but there still is a black lives matter movement for instance and there yes. are still organizations that are doing things we there's just no room for for that level of discussion anymore. But I remember having a conversation on air with a uh, friend several years ago about Black Lives Matter. And he was arguing that, you know, that, uh, you know, that protesting in the streets and causing disruptions to people. um, And he was creating many, many different, you know, um, straw men about how, hey, what if there was an emergency that happened, et cetera. Right, and Black Lives um, Matter was blocking the freeway, right? Exactly. And what if you're, And there's someone that's trying to get to the hospital because their dad's having a heart attack, and it, aren't you impinging upon their free, you know, all of that. It, oh, right, right. I remember it, it, exactly. that, convers- that exact conversation. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and the reality is, uh, and this is what was so upsetting about it, was 
This is the same conversation that happened 50 years ago about what was going on in Selma. What if, you know, what if the person on the bus was trying to get home for so-and-so? And, mm, and you mm. know, what about the uppity Negro that, you know, et cetera? This was, this was literally the same conversation. It's just like my, my very favorite conversation or my very favorite talk that Jay was, uh, uh, James Baldwin had a debate mm. um, in, in Oxford and I'm trying to remember who he uh, he debated, but um, it was uh, is is the Negro um, at at fault for his lot in life? And I sat and I watched it, and this was years ago. And I said, word for word, this exact argument is being repeated over and over again here now today. Right. Even with the statistics that I can put out there, even with with the context and social commentary, even with the uh, with the massive studies and all the science that goes behind it, when we talk about um, about uh, the traumas that actually happened in minority communities and what their effects have been on um, on child development and learning, et cetera, the conversation shifts to the bell curve. And that conversation immediately becomes, mm. well, maybe that population just isn't smart. And it's like, wait a minute. Can we talk about lead poisoning? Can we talk about what has led to this first before we discount this population as just being dumber because of racial profiling? And they, they just don't fit. I just keep thinking every time that comes up about the way that we fund public education through property taxes and the way that we don't give equal access to quality education to, the, to people. It's just it's just not. There's just not right. equal access to education. So these these and again, this comes back to what I was asking you about before about science and rationality. Like you can torture any set of data to give you. Uh, the statistics that you want, you know, and you survey a group of people and you find out, oh, some score better on a particular exam than others do. Therefore, one group must be smarter than the other group without taking context into, in, into consideration at all. And then, you know, someone brilliant like um, Kimberly Crenshaw yes, comes yeah, along yes. and says, well, you know, um, it's not just isolated characteristics about people. They actually, some people have overlapping qualities in their lives that make their lives difficult and in unjust in in overlapping and compounding ways um this is called intersectionality and we should talk about it we should think about it and and then you you get you know a panel of white men and a white woman talking about you know or or you know a panel of white people talking about how intersectionality is like religion and Right. And I'm and there's no black people to be found anywhere in that conversation, let alone the people who coined the expression or who are experts in that field. And I just it's I'm sorry. It just seems to me like defensiveness and status quo mongering, I, you know, but but, you know, who am I like, I, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Um, so affirmative action is a great ex example where, because, um, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm either accused of, and this is, you know, if you're a black person and you're relatively successful, typically it's because of affirmative action, right? It's just one of those things that, that I've just come to accept. It just never my hard work, et cetera. It is, I got my prom promotion because of affirmative action. Um, 
and and it, it the reality really never ever matters and they've been trying to dismantle affirmative action since it, it it was instituted we're talking about the first real attack right so it is 2019 now i would argue that yes we still deal with discrimination you know, we definitely deal with it in tech and tech in the uh, technology sector. Um, every year, we get a diversity report um, that is rationalized based on what we see coming out of the schools and what we should be seeing as hiring practices at Google, Apple, the big tech firms, and and we see the disparity. South by Southwest has a diversity um, a diversity panel that actually talks about this. Every year, it's a you know it's it's the big festival. But yeah. one day out out of that festival, there is a diversity discussion, and it's a, it's usually uh, diversity in technology. And we see wonderful, beautiful advancements on uh, small companies that are working on tech to you know blind either names or markers that show what uh, what a name might be or what a race might be, so that we can eliminate some of the potential. Um, potential biases that may be there when a uh, hiring manager or an HR personnel is looking at the names and the resumes. It's like, I don't know who this is. I don't know what they are. And here they seem qualified. Go ahead and do it. And by the way, some of the AI technology that we use for that is because of the way we code it, since we're also human, they tend to pick up some of our biases, by the way. So we need, yeah, yeah. They're so learning actually, from someone, right? Yeah, exactly. They are learning, ba- our ba- they're picking up our bad behavior. So that's not the answer. But, you know, being able to strip the information and say, here, you don't know anything about the individual except their accomplishments, their resume, et cetera. So that, that's great. But when we take a look at the tech sector as a whole, it is lagging. It is it is terrible when it comes to inclusion and diversity, even when they wind up hiring, quote unquote, diversity executives. They're usually not well trained for it or they're not funded enough or they're still, you know, it's a brand new um, brand new position and the corporate culture doesn't support it, et cetera. Um, but. When you look at it, it's like, wait, this is this is seriously lagging. When you go back to again, nineteen seventy nine, the same arguments that are that were being made in nineteen seventy nine are being made today, almost verbatim, where they're saying that even with the diversity, uh, the diversity gap in tech, that African Americans and other minorities are being singled out and promoted based on their race, not on merit. This is the same argument, literally the same argument mm. um, that was 1979. And it was a Sears case where someone, it was a white man who was arguing that a black man got a promotion and it made it all the way to the Supreme Court. Right. Yeah. It's the, it's the same thing that we saw with uh, not Rachel Dolezal, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, but the UT applicant that oh, said yeah. that her grades should have been good enough to get her in, and the uh, the minority quota was what kept her out. I was like, no, you just weren't good enough. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, we're we're coming down to the end of our time, and there just one one more thing I wanted to tack on the end of this, and um, 
you know, we, as you've mentioned, and I think I've mentioned it already too, you know, we are in this very special, shall we say, time in our history, 2019. We're halfway through a Trump presidency, or first term at least. Um, and politics is front and center in all of our lives, uh, more than it's probably been for a lot of people in the past. And and so political discussions are always on the surface. And I, for one, can't separate, you know, humanism from politics. To me, it's all politics. It's all about, for me, politics is about how we share limited resources with one another and how we um, get along or or don't get along with each other and create a fair, equitable world, which is what humanism in my mind is about. But it's because of the extreme inhospitable uh, nature of of uh, certain political policies that are anti-immigrant uh, or anti-poor, there's a, a wedge or divide that's growing in this country between um, parties, but more than just between parties, between sort of ways of thinking about um, the common good. Um, and, and some people are trying to stake out this space that they call the middle ground or the, the third way or... Uh, to be centrists. Um, do you feel at all like you're being pushed into um, more and more strident positions because of the the climate that we're in? Uh, maybe I'm not saying that right, but but I'm, no, I. So I, you know, years ago I would have said that I am really pretty center, maybe a little left of center, and this was maybe many, many, many years ago, yeah. and. But I think, uh, as many historians have noted, um, the entire political spectrum has shifted right, at least some. I think it's been more than a little bit because now right. I find myself uh, almost being, you know, Antifa. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. What? <laughs> How did I get here? Like, yeah. How did I get here? I never wanted to be in this place. This is what I want people to understand. Like, I didn't, you know, I didn't turn 21 and think, oh, I really want to be Antifa. And, you know, and when I've read the history of Antifa and anti fascist movements, none of those people want to be Antifa. They are in that position because they've been put there by right wing ideology. And this is, I guess, what I'm trying to get at. Right. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, (laughs) uh, I, 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 yeah, I find that, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I have to be more combative because, um, there we're, we're losing ground. Right. I mean, yes, the global war on poverty is moving in the right direction, but that's very relative. Right. And when you go out there and I mean, uh, for, for me, the the answer is, and it's a very irrational answer, is no one should be hungry. No one should be without a home or shelter, at least. Education should be there for everyone to have that. Quality education yeah. should be accepted. I mean, so, so some of these things... That's not so irrational. The fact that you would even feel in this moment that you would have to qualify it that way tells you a lot about where we are as a country. Exactly. That's, exactly. That, that's just normal... <laughs> Like it should be. Yeah, it was. It like, was. I. Who, yeah. Who in the privileged class would be willing to say, you know what? It's not so rational that everybody gets a good. I'd be willing to give up my good education. Nobody's <laughs> yeah. going to do that. Uh, but it's it's 
it's on it's left wing at this point i mean just just even just and i I wouldn't even consider is it liberal to say that um i think it comes back down to how selfish are you right and and how much how much do you care about people um versus caring for yourself and i think that's you know, I think that's the real difference behind the ideologies. It's you're not going to tell me what to do with my money. I'm going to do whatever I want to do with my money. I'm going to take care of my own because this is what I need to do to survive. And I empathize with that last part. I know that you you are scared and you feel as if you need to survive. Yeah. And there's a lot of things that go with it. But I think I still have this this chunk of humanism, I don't believe that it is, you know, perhaps it is a remnant of my Christian upbringing. I believe that it's not. I think it is, it is just simply something that I was just wired to do, it, to, to be in the service of my fellow man. It's, it's just something hmm. that I've got to do. It's something I need to do. And, and so I want to be that selfless person. I want to look at my kids and say, I am leaving this in a better, leaving you in a better situation than I once was. And I want not just that for you, but for your friends. And yes, that might be irrational because, hey, you're competing against them. And yeah, yeah, that's all fine and dandy. However, we're all in this together, are we not? Hmm. Well, thank you, Alex. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. I, I, I enjoyed it. Thank you, everyone, for hanging in there with us and, in, and tuning into that conversation. I hope that it was uplifting and inspiring to you. Uh, I so appreciate Alex's perspective and his ability to see the positive uh, when so much around us is uh, filled with negative information and news all the time. I think it's important to hold the positive and negative news that we hear and uh, know about in tension with each other and uh, to form a realistic picture of the world that we live in and to craft uh, responses in our personal lives for, for how to interact in our, in our communities and with one another. Uh, and so I really appreciate Alex's perspective. It's it's not that infrequently that I hit him up on Facebook and say, help me understand what's going on here. What's your perspective? And he always has uh, some really insightful thing to say. And it was actually one of those moments where I was reaching out to Alex to say, help me get some perspective on this that led to a very interesting back and forth on Facebook Messenger that ultimately led to this conversation that you just heard. So... Um, thank you again to Alex for taking the time uh, to be with us. He's uh, a busy father and a hard worker and provider for his family, and um, his time is precious. And so uh, much gratitude to you, Alex. Thank you. If you'd like to help us get the word out about the podcast, we'd appreciate you sharing this episode with your friends on social media and by email and whatever way you can get the word out to people you think might appreciate this content. If you appreciate this podcast and you want to stay in touch with the things we're doing, please visit our website at lifeaftergod.org. Once you're there, you'll be invited to sign up for our newsletter that comes out about once a month. You'll also see links to all of our social media where you can subscribe and stay in touch more frequently with the work that we're doing on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. 
If you want to help us produce this podcast and make it available to more people, please join us on patreon.com slash lifeaftergod. There you can make a recurring monthly donation of any size from $1 to whatever you feel this podcast is worth to you. At the $5 a month level, you'll be invited to join the Facebook group where members of the podcast discuss these episodes and support one another in community. We'll hope to see you online. As always, thank you to our executive producer, Jeff Straka. Thanks again to Alex Jules for taking his time. Until next time, I'm your host, Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God podcast. Podcast.